great sex doesn't happen without that level of vulnerability. It gets 10,000 times hotter when you actually understand what drives your partners and pulls out your partner's like deep eroticism. They're like primal erotic essence. So having just like a fun half hour meeting where you write those prompts down, you answer them and you read them to each other. And then you can marinate. You can sit with that information and go like, oh, this would be really, really fun then if we tried this, you know, and then I could bring this energy or they could bring this energy or we could bring this dynamic into the bedroom. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Well, I am thrilled to welcome on this week's show, Kiana Reeves. Kiana is an intimacy coach and a somatic sex educator. Welcome to the show, Kiana. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. So what I know about Kiana is she is a very knowledgeable and just a, a wealth of wisdom about intimacy, relationships, the body, and I've certainly learned a lot from you, Kiana, over the years that we've known each other. But I also just know you to be like a super deep human and just someone with a really big heart. So I'm thrilled to to have you share your wisdom with the Crazy Wisdom community and and they'll get to to really feel who you are. How's that sound? Same. Oh, it sounds so good. We're going to have such a great deep dive today. Yeah. So maybe just a place to start is uh, perhaps you'd like to just tell this audience a little bit about your work in the world? Yeah. I I wear a lot of hats. So I've been in the birth world for over a decade and started out in this work with uh, female sexual health, sensuality, and becoming a mother and like what that does to the, the physical and the sexual identity of the female body. And that continued to morph as I became a mom. And after becoming a doula and a postpartum doula, I really got interested in post-birth healing. So how to intravaginal practice where I was working hands-on with mothers and tons of other people too, working with their pleasure and scar tissue and the nervous system and trauma. And um, so much of that work informed what I've been doing the last five or six years, which is really embodiment, polarity, sexual intimacy, and diving deep into the things like the multiple avenues through which we access our sensuality and our eroticism. Yeah. Wonderful. So yeah, I love the blend of what you bring to your work, right? Which is the very kind of practical of the body, but also the deeper matters of the heart around how we love and give and receive love more deeply. Um, So yeah, looking forward to diving in. Well, for this episode, we decided to do something different, right? This is an experiment. I'll be very curious to hear what our crazy wisdom community thinks of this experiment, but this is a Q&A. So Kiana and I put on our social media channels an open call for questions around sex, intimacy, pleasure, desire, love, and we received quite a few questions. And we're going to work through, I don't know if we'll get through all of them, but we're going to work through some of these questions today with two intimacy coaches. You know, Those that have listened to the show know that I'm a coach as well. I coach mostly around leadership and transitions and rites of passage. But over the last several years, I have this growing part of my practice, my coaching practice around relationship and intimacy, working with couples and individuals around matters of love. So here we are, two intimacy coaches taking a few questions and let's see where this goes. What do you say? Can't wait. Yeah. So excited. Yeah. I actually thought it might be interesting also just to start to describe a little bit about where you and I met. So the nature of this show, right, is about all of the interesting, bizarre, intense, kind of unorthodox places we find ourselves in our quest to live a life of deeper purpose, deeper truth. And (laughs) I have to say, you and I have been to some wild places within that sense, right? So maybe just to start, like you could maybe tell a little bit of the story about- I'm going to tell it. Yeah. Why don't you tell the story of where we've met? Well, we're both part of the world of embodiment, sexual polarity, sexual intimacy. And we met in our mutual teacher's work, 
John Wineland's work. Yeah, John was on the of- yeah John was on the show actually. For those that are interested, go back oh, and listen. Right. It was one of the earlier episodes. A really amazing interview with John Wineland. So go check that out. Yeah, so we met. I think it was Valentine's Day, twenty twenty. It was right before COVID started, and it was my first. It was my very first workshop I'd ever done in this work. And it was a totally life-changing weekend. And I remember our practice, I was like, holy fucking shit, that is what, okay. Like it opened up a whole new world and we've had some really incredible experiences ever since then. Yeah, yeah. And for those that maybe aren't familiar with this idea of yogic intimacy, there's a way in which we can, in a very structured, contained way, we can you work on using our body and cultivating kind of an embodied way of giving and receiving love or erotic energy in a in a kind of in these retreats it's very much a practice space where the you know there's there's very tight boundaries around physical contact and the types of touch that are allowed but it's a way to look at how we can use our body to go into deeper states of love right and anything else you would add about that yeah i think it's a it's a really good place to play with energetic cultivation. And something I think is so interesting that we'll touch on today with some of the questions is this idea of sexual range. And, you know, our, our personalities, like our sexual, the way we show up in a sexual moment very much reflects our personalities and what we feel comfortable showing to the world. And so when you go into practice in sexual yoga, polarity spaces, what you're practicing is embodying energies that have either been sublimated or have, you know, somehow in your subconscious not been allowed for whatever reason. And I think that's something that's so, so, so valuable when we're talking about being in long-term relationship or finding new pathways to desire with a partner or really understanding like your own blocks around particular behaviors or, um, experiences in a sexual moment with a partner. Yeah, absolutely. So it's yet another way to kind of reclaim lost parts of ourselves. It's a way of kind of working out in this like sexual dojo, (laughs) working out the parts of ourselves that are maybe a little unexpressed or have wounds of the past. And it's a way of kind of working that out with a partner or in a group setting um, so that we show up with a much clearer heart. And at the end of the day, it's some of the most powerful healing work I've come across, right? Because you just get to leave kind of on the dojo floor, all of the the pain that we habitually hold around our heart and our sexual body. So, Yeah. And just final note on that is like, there's, you can get so far with yourself, right? You can get so far with self-cultivation and exploring your own sensuality and eroticism. But the second you're, you're brought to your edge by looking another practitioner in the eyes and you see all of your resistance around intimacy and vulnerability and all of your fear, all of the stuff that comes up, um, to be in a space that allows for that level of practice, there's a willing participant in front of you willing to help lead you to that edge is, I think, one of the most invaluable healing opportunities that has ever existed in my own life and for others. Yeah, well said, well said. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, Kendra Kunoff also came on this show and go back and listen to that episode. We talk a lot about the idea of taboo, sexual taboo, and all the energy that can be stored in the sexual taboo and how do you actually reclaim some of that energy? Great. So, okay, well, let's let's dive into the Q&A. Let's get to the main event here. Awesome. <laughs> so we have a lot of questions. Thank you for everybody that sent them in. We'll get to as many as we can. We might not get to all of them. But let's get started with the first question, which is, how can I get my libido and my sensual self back? Mm. So libido is an umbrella term for a complex set of inputs in the body. Libido can be both very like biological and hormonal, can be very emotionally driven, can be relationally or environmentally driven. And when you're looking at the areas of like what is impacting my libido, you want to investigate all three of those areas. So definitely hormonally, if you have any kind of chronic stress, any type of uh, hormonal imbalance, thyroid, estrogen, sex hormones, et cetera, like that's a good place to address it. A lot of people will go through libido changes when they're postpartum or they've just had a baby or they're going through menopause or perimenopause. And that's a good kind of like foundational thing to check out if your libido is doing something different than what is normal for you. I would say though that the the most uh, important areas to investigate that we don't actually talk about a lot in this space are the emotional libido, which is where like what's happening in my heart, like why is my body, my heart, my emotions shutting down to my partner or to my sexuality in a particular way. 
So when we dive into the emotional component of libido, especially if you're a woman, women's hearts are very, very, very connected to our sexual energy and our desire. And if your heart is not available, if you're holding resentment, or if you're feeling any kind of emotional retention or closure around something, it's going to be really, really hard for you to want to be open to somebody else sexually. And that's a really important place to investigate. And the other thing you can investigate with libido is like, where do I close? What are the areas where I'm like shutting this down in my own life? Where am I lacking putting this as a priority? And I think when you look at that combination versus just the traditional, like, what can I take? What supplement can I take? Where can I boost my hormones? It's, it's a much more holistic view and understanding of libido. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I love that kind of the triangle, the trifecta view of that. You know, where I go with this is a bit of the best, in my mind, the best place to start about cultivating or growing a sense of the sensual self, right, is with the self. It's, it's just to get into the senses. Sometimes life makes us a bit closed off to being in exchange with the world around us, whether it's stress, whether it's biological, whether it's psychological. We, we get kind of concretized around our heart and just around our ability to feel enjoyment, feel pleasure. Uh, so there's a way in which kind of the first step is to just enjoy the senses, take it off of sex in the classic sense of you know genital sex and focus on what's it like to feel good in my body? How do I allow pleasure into my system, whether it's the breeze on my face during a walk in the afternoon or the sun, or whether it's chocolate or whether it's, you know, caressing my own, my own skin or giving myself shoulder rub or self-pleasure, masturbation, growing into adding erotic energy. But kind of the, there's this thing about momentum and opening up our senses not just from kind of the classic genital sense, but the whole body, right? Yeah. I think you hit something on the head that's really important, which is pleasure is not always sexual. And hopefully our sexual experiences are inherently pleasurable. But to focus on pleasure in your life, like to actually cultivate a pleasure practice where your focus is on experiencing pleasure through your senses, through your touch, through your sight, through your sound, through your taste, what it does is it immediately orients you into your body and into the present moment, which is where all sexual pleasure, all desire, all of that good, juicy kind of yearning quality exists in the moment and in the body. And so when you have practices that reorient your train of thought, reorient your attention immediately into pleasure, what you start to cultivate is these neural pathways that will train your body into more and more sensuality, more and more desire. And a really beautiful way to do that, even before you go into, you know, genital focused masturbation or self-pleasure is really loving self-touch, which soothes, calms the nervous system. Your body really can't tell the difference between you touching yourself and another person touching yourself so that the type of neurochemicals it stimulates is a really, really healthy cocktail for making you feel good. And also it just like, it reminds you of your body, you know, so if you touch your hips in a loving way or you you rub your belly or your thighs with a lot of love and intention, what you'll notice is not only there is where pleasurable sensation lives, you'll start to remember, you'll start to go like, oh, my body, beautiful, you know? And that's that's a really nice entry point, I think. Yeah, beautiful, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I just, one last note on this, you know, just my experience as a man, working with a lot of men as a men's coach, there's also this thing about, it is a, a bit about momentum, right? A feeling, a feeling of aliveness. And so maybe it's as simple as like a long run or, a, or, you know, a workout or getting some shit done around our purpose and our mission and our work in the world. There's a thing about that sense of completion and accomplishment and the kind of neurochemicals associated with pushing through something hard and challenging and then being on the other side, it kind of evokes and cracks open a bit of, of availability for pleasure to come in. I know if I feel like I'm just like, I've got a bunch of stuff to do and I haven't worked out, like I'm not, like my libido is a bit lower, maybe even my testosterone's a little lower. But if I'm like working out regularly and I'm getting shit done and I'm feeling good about my work in the world and the state of my family and my relationship, then I'm like, you know, I'm ready to go. 
<laughs> yeah. And those are all absolutely testosterone boosting activities. Yeah. So they don't live independently of each other. Like the hormones are very impacted by our, what we're doing in our lives, like with, by our stress levels, by our mental activity levels, by our exercise levels. And so you can kind of approach from all angles and have a really, really nice impact. Nice. Okay, great. All right. Well, let's let's go on to the second question here, which is when should I start dating again? My husband ah. and I divorced six months ago, and I'm not sure when I should start getting back out there. Yeah. So really good question. My impulse would be this is going to be different for everyone, mm -hmm. depending on what type of divorce it was, how energetically and emotionally charged it was, how clear you feel about the relationship being ended. Sometimes these things can go on for years and years without them feeling like there's closure. So it will vary. But I think having the intention to like lightly date is probably the six month window after about six months, just to lightly like test and see how it feels is a nice entry point to see how your heart feels when you set the intention of availability or connecting with someone new, or maybe you're trying, you know, all everyone's favorite online dating, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, your body will tell you. And as long as you're listening to the cues of your heart and your body, taking some risks, putting yourself out there, connecting with new people, putting a foot forward instead of just staying where you are is a healthy practice, no matter if it's just going to dinner with someone or messaging someone over the internet, there is a healthy sense of, of moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So whomever sent this in, I would love to talk to you, right? It's like, this is so kind of dependent upon each heart, each, each person. And what the what the situation is and how your kind of unique experience of going through a divorce through a, a big breakup like this where has that left you in this moment and also what's your intention around dating right there's a lot of different ways to date if it's just to go out and have kind of playful connections that's one thing if you're looking for a serious you know life partner with a deep commitment that's another type of dating or if there's maybe something in between of just kind of getting back out there. Part of this would depend on, from my point of view, like what's your intention? Um, I do think in any sort of breakup, you know, there's, there are kind of two schools of thoughts of this. I tend to be a little bit more on the, it's good to take a bit of time to be with yourself and to be with all of the feelings of loss, of you know, loss of hopes and dreams and the pain, whether it was your choice or not, to take some time to let yourself metabolize some of the impact of a big breakup so that when you step into some sort of new dating situation or a new relationship, you've done whatever you can to clear up as much of that as possible so that your heart is available for something deep, right? And there's different ways to do this and there's different intentions about it. And it's not to say that like you have to be like 100% totally healed of all pains of any breakup you've ever had to be in a deep and meaningful relationship. We can bring some of that into a new relationship and new relationships can be very healing around pains of the past. But I do think there's some kind of tipping point for most of us that we can feel like when we're actually ready. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking these are two really nice questions to ask yourself if you're going through this process. One is, how well have I grieved the end of this relationship? And have I really spent time doing what I need to do to feel a sense of completion around it? Because the sense of completion is what's going to allow your heart to be available or at least available enough to be looking forward instead of distracting yourself with someone else. And the distraction I, I don't think is as healthy as is stepping into something when you're really tuning in and going like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually available. Okay, great. So those are a few ideas. And again, like, you know, I wonder if we, if we were to do this again, Keanu, we, sh we, we should open ourselves up to like getting voice memos so we can kind of like get a little bit more of the context, you know. You and I have both gone through pretty major breakups right. and we both have kids. And so to that extent, we've gone through this process. And for me, I went through the process of essentially getting a divorce and jumping right into a relationship that was very, very, very healing. But about Three months into that relationship, I knew right away that I wasn't going to be able to sustain it because my grieving and my my tying up of the loose ends of the relationship before it wasn't done. So I wasn't going to be fully available. 
And will you will get those signals. Anyone will get those signals. And they'll be pretty strong and persistent throughout the course of a relationship. So you do start to date someone and you suddenly are like, well, I don't know if I'm ready because I have these things going on. Like that voice isn't necessarily going to go away anytime soon. That's right. Yeah. So I mentioned the episode with Kendra Kunov and we actually talk about her no man diet program, right? And so there's this whole idea out there around a cleanse, you know, after we go through a big breakup, taking six months, I did this after my divorce, took six months and didn't date and just focused on my own kind of relationship with myself and kind of reconciling with the divorce and it took away the distraction of another person that then allowed me to go deeper into my own heart and my own pain and my own desires and clarifying what I really wanted in a relationship. And it was super helpful, right? Let's go on to the next one, shall we? Yeah. This one is, how do you know when you should leave a relationship? I've been together with my partner for three years, but things have gotten very tense and also dull. I love her, but also don't want to waste my life on something that isn't right. Mm. Yeah, it sounds painful. I have a belief that somewhere inside every person, there is a knowing of whether or not you are supposed to be with somebody. And your responsibility is to look at how am I showing up in this relationship? How have I contributed to our current dynamic, which doesn't necessarily reflect the actual connection that you you have underneath, you know, anything that's built up over the years. And if you if you look at those two pieces and you start to go like, oh, here's how I've contributed. I've contributed my laziness. I haven't shown up with my desire. I've been withdrawn and working. I've been uh, you know, holding X, Y, and Z resentment. If you start to work with those and you look at those and you really like pull them apart and are able to separate them from the essence of the connection, the actual love that you two share, you will know if that's a person that you are really supposed to be with. And the hard part comes with when you have that recognition, making the decision to not be in that relationship anymore. That's like where our comfort comes in and our fear comes in and I don't want to be alone and I've invested so much. And, you know, all of the voices that question that deep inner knowing that every single one of us has access to. So I think that's a good place to start is to try to pull those two things apart. I'm interested in, in what you have to say on this, Luke. Yeah. I mean, when I think about this, right, this is, I mean, this is a topic that comes up a lot in coaching, right? When we are coaching people around intimacy and relationship, this is one of the most common topics that I'm working with people is like, am I in the right relationship? I've been seeing somebody or I've been married to somebody for a while. Like, how do I know? And for me, it really starts with, there's a conversation, as you say, about like resentments and needs that needs to happen. Have I really spoken the truth of my heart? And have I really gone there around the things that would that need to be said in order to shift a dynamic in a relationship that's not fully working? And until I can answer that question definitively and really laid out what I would need and really try to feel into what my partner and draw out what my partner might need for the relationship to be epic and juicy and you know alive and full of love and joy and pleasure and all the things that most people want... If I haven't had that conversation, then I'll never really know, right? But once I've had that conversation and we've kind of done the knee-to-knee work, then I give it a bit of time to see if this is the person that can really meet those needs. And at some point, we typically will know, right? You know, I think it's so often as this, you know, as this question kind of points to, there's um, there's like a comfort in familiarity that can be that gravitational pull around familiarity can be quite a force in keeping us in relationships that maybe don't serve us, right? So I think that's always a thing about, you know, yeah, just when we think about this. Yeah. And back to this person's, you know, description of the relationship, the word dull really stood out to me. And that's where I would really dive in. Like, where am I bringing my own dullness? I mean, it it sounds harsh, but it's like, if it's dull, you're contributing to that dullness in some way by, you know, your own patterns, your own habits, et cetera. And that becomes like, if you look at your relationship as an opportunity to bring the best of yourself and to share that with another person, which is essentially what we want in relationships, share the best parts of ourselves, our, all of our love, all of our devotion, all of our presence with another person. When you start to investigate, like, where you've dropped the ball on bringing energy or spontaneity or play or 
you know, your, your edge that some people really need to like bring a dynamic edge so that there's some tension in the relationship and you make it your responsibility. Obviously it's both people's responsibility, but you claim like, this is also my responsibility. It doesn't just exist naturally within a relationship. I'm committed to bringing this. You'll start to see changes in this relationship naturally. And it's a really important thing for anyone in relationship, because like we have to be fiercely committed to those aspects of our relationship that we need to be alive. It's not just on our partner to meet our needs. Of course they have to meet us, but we have to be willing. Like if we're, if one of our needs is like, I need deep sexual pleasure and connection with my partner and I'm not bringing my desire and I'm not bringing my, my eroticism and my desire to them, then it's not on them to fill that need for me. It's that's actually me not prioritizing my needs. And so when we're talking about the needs conversation, it's crucial to get clear on the top, you know, list out all of your needs, but get really clear, like, what are your top five non-negotiables? And if any of those that if you look at that and you go, oh, this is very clear that this need cannot be met in this relationship. That's, that's like, um, that's it. That's you the, have your answer. The, you, yeah, the <laughs> like answer you is just clear. have your yes. answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So, I mean, I love this, right? It's like, can you imagine what relationships would be like if both partners or all partners took 100% responsibility for the state of the relationship, right? There's so often it's very easy to kind of like go into a blame mode about things in relationship, right? So if we take 100% responsibility and then try to shift the relationship from that place, it's um, then you'll know, you'll really know whether that partner can meet your needs or not. All right. So let's go on to the next one. It says, this question is, I'd love inspiration or techniques for giving more as a female to my man in the bedroom. There's so many places we can go with this, but where I'd like to really go and where I'd like to start is with this idea of circling back to sexual range, right? The excitement of sexual connection with a partner comes in large part from its ability to be dynamic and its ability to be novel. So not that every sexual experience has to be this new, interesting thing. But novelty, like it's, it's something fresh. It's something new that we can touch, taste. It's a new experience. And it actually like it builds and creates interest in our brains and in the way that our neurochemistry works. And so if you can take that idea of like, I want to bring every single part of myself. And that means all of the parts that I've maybe never shown this person. And I, that's my responsibility to then to get in touch with them. And you can start to do that with looking at energetic archetypes, which is a lot of the work that we've done in the embodiment world and the sexual polarity world, where you're bringing in textures of different archetypes of the feminine or the masculine that really, you know, A, you either have a hard time with embodying or B, that your partner is going to really love or C, that you've never explored before. And that's exciting to you. And all of those are important. And these can range from things like some of the masculine ones are like, king and warrior and magician lover you know you can come up with a million gorilla like <laughs> fierce fierce lover i don't know um and in the feminine these can be things like slut or queen or the mother or angelic i mean there's 10,000 of them and we can go through so many different ideas but uh, a great place to start is like movies and media where you can kind of pull a blueprint or an imprint of how someone feels on screen. And you're like, oh, I'd like to try that energy on. I'd like to try out that kind of feeling in my own body and then bring it into a, a personal practice, which would look like, you know, you're in a pleasure practice, it's nighttime, you're dancing, and you kind of just start to feel in your body the part of you that is a little bit slutty. And I'll share a personal story around this because I didn't know what the fuck anyone was talking about when I first started working with sexual energies. And I discovered one that was really hard for me in the beginning was slut. I was like so resistant to the word. I was actually like repelled by it, embarrassed by it, never wanted to be associated with it. And so I really started working with it because the parts, the ones that trigger us the most are the ones that we've totally suppressed and like decided were not okay or available to us when we were younger. And when you start to work those edges and you actually like inhabit the part of yourself, even if it's just three minutes, five minutes of embodying the slutty version of yourself, 
Uh, it's quite liberating. And you can take a piece of that and then bring it into the bedroom. So maybe you you use some tools like um, lingerie that you wouldn't normally buy, something that evokes it in yourself and that can really evoke it in your partner. And you'll see that even the when you use tools like that and you use energy together to present yourself in a way that feels just a little bit different, it's a little bit of a different texture, your partner's response will be like, what the? like there's so much excitement because we all have appetite to feel all of the textures of not just our partner, but of life, of like what's possible in love, you know? And it brings out a lot of passion and a lot of tension and a lot of play, which are great for sexual exchanges. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, so, so juicy. So I think we can feel like the the magic that's possible by kind of these, as you say, like grabbing these different archetypes or these avatars and, and at times surprising our partner by showing up in a different energy, right? Just sweeping her off her feet in a surprising way or twirling her around or whatever it is coming in, coming in fierce. You know, there's a way in which the delight factor is increased when it's kind of a surprise, right? And so that's, you know, that is definitely a way to do this. There's another, I would also say like there's a, there's a thing about we, sometimes we actually need to just like talk about this first and yeah, really, for sure. right? Or like really <laughs> yeah. understand our desires, have a conversation about our sexual needs and desires and are really with a high level of inquiry and investigation and curiosity, try to understand what erotic fantasies our partners, our partner has, yeah. right? And just really try to understand not just what are the scenes that they that they fantasize about but like what's the textures underneath it and what's that where is that coming from in there and them so that then we can like in a moment make some beautiful sexual art and surprise and delight them by meeting their their own fantasy and and sometimes part of that conversation is very much like uh, permission to experiment right like let's give each other permission to make mistakes in the bedroom or in a sexual moment, let's treat this as like a process of uncovering each other is, you know, deeper desires and be okay, like taking some risks Uh, because this is (laughs) this type of, you know, kind of evoking or expanding our range sexually in a long-term relationship. It requires stepping out of our comfort zone and sometimes stepping out of our partner's comfort zone. And we don't always know how that's going to go and sometimes it's messy sometimes feelings get hurt usually it's fucking awesome right if we're willing to like take the risk yeah the permission is Mm -hmm. so huge permission i think is like the key piece to have a discussion and don't do it in the moment like talking in the sexual moment is actually the antithesis of sexy a little talk like two words is fine but Mm -hmm. having a conversation before or during sexual experiences is not great so plan something like i'd really love to talk to you about, you know, something that's exciting and like bringing more play and connection into our sexual experience. And then sit down, you each get a notepad. And the question is, you know, you write for five minutes on um, what really turns me on is. And make sure there's explicit permission not to just write about like what's happening in your sexual relationship, but, you know, things you've seen in movies, things you've seen in porn, if you watch porn, things that have happened in past relationships, you don't need to like say this happened with this person, but you know, when someone X, Y, Z, or when my X, Y, Z is touched X, Y, Z way, you know, and get really, really clear about it and unfiltered with it. And then the second question you can ask is when I fantasize, and this is, I mean, it's vulnerable shit. Like you, you're going to, parts of your psyche are going to be revealed and parts of your partner's psyche are going to be revealed that might be confronting, but great sex doesn't happen without that level of vulnerability. It gets 10,000 times hotter when you actually understand what drives your partners and pulls out your partner's like deep eroticism. They're like primal erotic essence. And so having just like a fun half hour meeting where you write those prompts down, you answer them and you read them to each other. And then you can marinate. You can sit with that information and go like, oh, this would be really, really fun then if we tried this, you know, and then I could bring this energy or they could bring this energy. Or we could bring this dynamic into the bedroom. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. So many possibilities. We could feel the how juicy it could be. <laughs> All right. So 
We're going to switch directions here with this next one. Is it normal to be in open relationships and date multiple partners? I don't think anything's normal. Like what is normal? You know, I'd like to remove the word normal from our lexicon here and just talk about needs again, because people have different needs within their relationship structures, monogamous, polyamorous, dyads, triads, you know, however the setup is, but to get clear on the need underneath. So it's very different for someone entering a a polyamorous relationship because they have a clear understanding that monogamy doesn't work for them because they want to be in multiple relationships with multiple different people and they are committed completely to the level of transparency and communication that that requires versus someone stepping into polyamory because they are unsatisfied already in a monogamous relationship that they have, or they're trying to get something else that they can't get from their partner. And I think that a lot of people confuse that experience of being in a monogamous relationship and feeling like you're not getting a need met. So wanting to open it so that you can get a different need met with the other, which is like really stepping in with clarity that, you know, that there's a particular type of relationship path for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's so spot on. When I, you know, when I look at this, we all have kind of an imprint about our kind of sexual essence, right? Our sexual body. And this, it it manifests in various ways, like who we're attracted to. Um, There's a spectrum of, of orientation, right? There's a spectrum of what kind of lights us up. For some people, I think they're born pretty, pretty open, pretty like poly, pretty, you know, attracted to a lot of different people, a lot of different types of people and desire that and want that and need it. Other people are more monogamous or completely monogamous. And for them, the deepest expression is to go super deep with one person, maybe for their whole life or, you know, a series of deep monogamous relationships. And so it's, some of this is just kind of like both how we're wired and how we were raised, right? And so it's about unpacking and uncovering who we are. What is our truth about really our desires? And, you know, my point of view is like, no shame. Like if you're, if you are truly uh, polyamorous, then, you know, if, as long as you're bringing a high level of, you know, integrity to that, then that is probably what your soul needs to be fully expressed, right? And I completely honor that. And if somebody is more on the monogamous end and for them, like no matter what happens, they're sticking with their partner and, and that's their deepest expression, I, I completely honor that. So this question about what's normal, again, I, I don't know, how, that's a challenging framing. Obviously, culturally, we're, there's a massive bias towards monogamy even in the face of a lot of evidence that many more people are not monogamous than <laughs> is a spouse, right? <laughs> yeah. right? So normal in the sense of what's culturally the norm is definitely monogamy. So for somebody to be kind of consciously in an open relationship, it takes a pretty, what I would say is like a pretty high level of courage to do that and do that well and to live your life from that point of view. I guess I'm, today's the day where I'm plugging past episodes, but I had Kamala Devi McClure on. It's the episode on sex shamans, but they are very poly. And they were in a show on, on Showtime about, it's, I think it's called Polyamorous Married and Dating, right? And it's this it's reality TV show that followed them and their partners around for a couple of years. And you know somebody like that, I mean, if you want to go deep into the poly mindset, I would definitely point you towards them. It's really enlightening kind of point of view. At the end of the day, I think, as you said, like it's easy to <laughs> the easy path is to claim that you're poly and open when things get tough in a monogamous relationship, right? And I think that there is uh, you know, for those of us that value integrity and kind of being true to our heart and speaking difficult truths, even when it's really hard, it's easy to see in a lot, I'm not saying all poly relationships, but it's easy to see where it's used as an escape hatch to going deep and being in difficult conversations or possibly ending a relationship. And sometimes that is absolutely what's called for opening a relationship up or a marriage up. Sometimes that is 
absolutely the thing to do. But sometimes, you know, I think we can all kind of feel like there's there's also at times a bit of shallowness in some people that are doing that. And I think that that gives the true, honest, kind of open relating people kind of a bad rap unnecessarily. Right. Yeah. All right. So on to the next one. What compromises should you make in a relationship and what compromises shouldn't you? Oh, my gosh. This, again, is going to point back to needs. Mm hmm. Because you cannot compromise on your fundamental needs. You really can't. And so to talk about compromise without the context and understanding of what your core needs are is a little bit challenging. And I would say it's a prerequisite to compromise is understanding like what you're available and willing to compromise on and what you absolutely can't. Like monogamy for some people. I was just chatting with my friend last week. She's going through a relationship shift and, you know, splends our last two questions, but the, the man wants to be more poly. She was like, well, maybe I can, you know, I'm open to it. And I'm like, yeah, but like, what's your need? Maybe you can is different than what do you actually want? And like, what's a core need for you? And we discovered deep down underneath it that like, actually her core need is monogamy. And so when you try to bend, like a compromise, we usually see is like two people meeting in the middle, but a compromise is not really you bending your needs around someone else's desires to fit it so that you can stay in the relationship. Like that's not a healthy compromise. And that's the delineation I think is important to me. Like if you can compromise on things that are important to you, that feel still an in integrity to you, but you feel like you have leeway. Yes. Great. Wonderful. But if you're compromising on something that it really is a true core essence need, like I need to be really valued and loved in our relationship. I need monogamy. I need one for me is like, I need my partner's sexual energy to be like super, super clear and not going with anybody else. Um, if my partner was like, yes, and I need to flirt with lots of people and have like a lots, you know, I would be like, no, like I can't fundamentally can't do that. And so it's just, it's being unapologetic and unafraid to claim your true, true, true needs and express them and not be afraid of the love you may lose or the relationship you may lose for owning those truths. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I guess the only thing I would add is relationship by its very nature requires compromise, just to state the obvious. Like yeah. I've yet to be in a relationship or meet a relationship where someone didn't have to give, right? And so this question about like, what's the line that's too far, I think is a really good one. But just, I think we can all expect that if we're gonna be in a committed relationship that is long-term, that we will have to compromise. Yeah. All right. Porn question. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one. There's always at least one. Um, <laughs> is porn bad for you? Is it ever good? I struggle with it. Do you want to answer this first? I'll answer this one first. Yeah. I would say, is porn bad for you? It can be. can be quite bad. It doesn't have to be. Is it ever good? It can be good. <laughs> it doesn't have to be good. And many people struggle with it, right? So I mean, my basic point of view on porn is that first and foremost, it's entertainment. Unfortunately, it's the largest form of sex ed that we have on the planet. And most of our youth and now adults have been raised as pornography being the kind of primary way of learning about sex. And the most important thing for me, you know, that I think if people understood would change things is it is very staged. All the uncomfortable, messy, awkward moments are taken out. And the body types in porn are not representative of the average human, right? So it is entertainment. It's like going and watching a highly produced, you know, movie or whatever production of some sort that is very curated for a certain flavor, right? And so it morphs, creates this gap between expectations around sex and the reality of what meaningful, deep sexual experiences actually are. And I should say, like, not all porn is that. I would just say most porn is that, right? There are types of porn that are more artistic. There's a whole genre, email-friendly porn that typically is a bit more honest in its way of presenting how most people have sex. There's, you know, there's, there's a whole underbelly of the porn industry, right? That is very, that is exploitation is at the heart of it, right? 
And so to be a consumer of porn requires a level of uh, knowledge, understanding, vigilance, commitment to not contribute to the exploitation of people that may be willingly or unwillingly participating in it, including minors, right? So there's obviously this big underbelly that I think some people know, but probably not everyone knows that like it has, it has an underbelly. The other thing I'll say about porn is it really does change the mind and the brain, right? I personally experienced this, you know, I, I watched porn for many years, kind of in my, as a younger man. And when I was in maybe like my mid thirties, I met a challenge by a brother of mine that really like saw me and like knew me. And he said, don't watch any porn for a year and see what it does to you. And within a few weeks, I noticed how much it changed my mind and my relationship about how I was experiencing women in my life. The constant objectification of like ranking and, and the way that I looked at women started to change and soften where I saw more of who they were rather than just the body. And after a year going back and watching porn, I noticed how kind of addictive and how, um, how kind of hooky it is, right? Like it's very slippery where it's a very, for some, it can be very addictive. And for me, it was, it's always been this kind of slippery slope. Now it's not to say that I haven't ever looked at porn sense, right? But there's a certain way in which can be, you know, used much more mindfully and especially with a partner, right? That's where it can be particularly kind of interesting and useful. So yeah, but the struggle is real. Like the struggle is real. I think especially with men, the struggle is real. And yeah, I'd be curious your your thoughts. Yeah. There's so many things you touched on that I want to circle back to. One is that dopamine pathway. So porn, in the same way that a sexual experience lights up our, our pleasure and reward center, it stimulates the release of dopamine, which makes us want to go do the same thing again. And so it can be, I'll say the word addictive in the sense that like you, it makes you want more of it. And it can be desensitizing because as you watch more and more porn and need to go back, the stimulation has to be higher and higher to get you to that place where you're feeling that heightened sense. And so the slippery slope then is there where you're kind of watching porn to receive a stimulus, a feeling of like intense stimulation in your body um, that has to continue to grow and grow and grow in order for you to reach that peak. And a lot of what happens when masturbation and porn are going hand in hand is we're not paying attention to what's happening in the body. We're actually like just tuned out visually into what's happening in the video. And we're not noticing that like we're super tense. The whole body's tense. You're focused on like, you know, getting off as fast as you can. You're not breathing. You're not moving slowly. And the way that you masturbate really impacts the, the way that you have partnered sex. And so if you're masturbating continually, very fast paced, and you're not paying attention to anything except visually what's in front of you, that's pretty much how you're going to show up as a lover, which as a woman, like a man who shows up that way as a lover is not an enjoyable experience. And so you can just look at the, I feel like I've said neural pathways 500 times in this episode, but really like look at what happens in your neural pathways and where it's impacting the rest of your life. And that is like one thing I think it's really important to be aware of with porn. Now saying that I am a fan of porn as a tool. So it's that age old saying like too much of anything is not good, but a little bit is fine. Same with porn. If you are finding ethical porn or feminist porn or porn that's really has heart in it and that's showing real bodies and real connection that you can feel through the screen, then there's value in learning from it. And the things that you can learn from porn, I think, especially are like, ooh, what turns me on? What do I look for when I'm searching for some kind of porn on the internet? For me, if I like bring porn into my life, it's my need is really emotional connection. I need to feel the like spark of connection between the two people. And that's very much how I am sexually. Like I need a deep emotional spark with someone to feel like there's a strong sexual connection. So you can start to pull like, oh, what am I interested in? What turns me on in these moments? And if you use it as kind of like an indicator that points back into your fantasy, 
then it's an amazing tool to explore your own eroticism and go, cool, maybe that's something that I want to bring into the bedroom. That's a similar energy that I want to bring into the bedroom, or that's something that I would really like for my partner. And you guys watching porn together could be a great exploration of a date night where you start to see like visual representation of how you might want to explore something together. The ethical piece is super important because free porn is porn that has advertising dollars driven behind it, SEO. And it's it's basically created to fund huge companies with no moral ethics at all. So pay for your porn, find directors and performers that love what they do. And it's much, much more positive experience and holistic experience. Yeah. Well said. Do you have any favorites you want to share? I, I love Erica Lust uh-huh. for yeah. people in general. And then um, Belesa for it's, it's, it's more geared towards women, I think, but they have a fun like porn subscription and they let their performers choose who they want to work with. So for me, like the, you know, the emotional spark where you're like, oh, I'd actually want to have sex with that person. Mm-hmm. There's been some great videos where I'm like, damn, I'm going to send this to my friends. Like this is a really legit experience this person is having, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Erica Lust, definitely recommend her work. Yeah. yeah. And just one other point just to underline here, which is like long lovemaking sessions where we can, you know, for men move to non-ejaculatory orgasms or just sustained periods without ejaculating where we can kind of be in control of when we release. For me, it's really difficult to do while consuming a lot of porn because the porn is, it's hard to really do the practices we need about relaxation and moving energy through the body and kind of opening up the pelvis area, relaxing the pelvic muscles and bouncing energy off the base of the pelvis. Doing that while watching porn is really complicated. And, you know, so, you know, the way to, I think for most of us that, you know, we want to train to be better lovers, especially men, is to do, to self-pleasure without porn and use imagination. If we require visual stimulation, it's more of like a mental imagination about a potential partner while we're, while we're self-pleasuring for longer periods of time so that we show up in our actual love making with our actual lovers with you know just the neuro the nervous system capacity and the kind of the body capacity to last longer so valuable all right so we have a we have we're going to close with a a really juicy one okay it's it's a question about squirting i had a past partner who squirted when she was coming it was amazing my current girlfriend doesn't any tips for making her squirt well I'm not a fan of goal-oriented anything sexually because, going back to porn, porn kind of was the industry that started to idolize the squirting response in the body. And what it signifies is this kind of like peak orgasmic experience. And actually, women can squirt without having an orgasm. And it doesn't always feel like the most pleasurable experience in that person's body. So the question, it's a little, not like a, I would turn this question back around, like, who is that for? Is that for her? Or is that for you to feel like you're bringing her somewhere that you think she should be? Because if it's not her need, it might not be the thing that ultimately brings her the most pleasure. Explore all of the other avenues that would bring her into that space. And she'll probably end up squirting at some point, you know, but squirting being the goal is never my favorite option. That said, real squirting, true squirting that happens when the, you know, the G spot in the intravaginal erectile tissue is stimulated in a particular way that goes with orgasm and has intense climax with it can be really, really beautiful and can be such an incredible emotional and physical release for the person experiencing it. And so I'm not contradicting myself, but I I just like that piece around squirting doesn't always happen with orgasm and it's not always the best feeling. Like make sure to understand your partner's thoughts, needs, desires around exploring that. And then when you look at the female anatomy and the way the body is structured, the we have a lot of different erectile tissue beds. We actually have the same amount of erectile tissue in our vulva and intravaginally that 
a man does in his penis or a person with a penis does. And we need all of that. Like think of all the blood that goes into making a penis hard. We need all of that blood in our vulva and intravaginally for sex to feel highly pleasurable. And that usually takes us a little bit longer, especially if you're looking at that, like that buildup period, that's more in the foreplay, the getting turned on, the brain's getting turned on in that realm. And what will happen is that the, the clitoris, the outer labia, and there's something called the perennial sponge, all of those fill up with blood first. And then the G-spot fills up with the, the fluid basically that's flooding in the area. It doesn't fill up with blood. And that is the fluid that is excreted when there is an ejaculatory experience. And so when you're stimulating the G-spot and you're moving towards the you know beautiful ambrosia that is the the squirting experience, it's likely going to be very, very, very deep and far into a highly arousing sexual experience, like 20, 40 minutes, an hour in, two hours in, don't go for the squirt, go for what's bringing her incredible pleasure. And I would say even instead of focusing on technique, track her body, like you're a hunter and you're paying attention to her breath and you're paying attention to her sounds and her moans, is she kind of like, is she tense anywhere in her body? Is there anything that you could say or do anywhere you could touch her to help her relax into the experience anymore? And when you track your partner in that way, there is, there's actually like no escaping pleasure because you're so in tune with what she's feeling that every move you make brings her more and more into that experience of ecstasy. And when you go in with like a technique or a goal, it's just, it's, she can feel that and her resistance and her tension will actually intensify versus helping her enter a state of relaxation that she would need to even experience that level of pleasure. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so juicy, so powerful. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the only thing I would add would be, you know, this is why you know, as dudes, <laughs> got to do your sexual Kung Fu. You got to be able to like really last longer so that, you know, you can follow her pleasure as, as her pleasure intensifies, you don't get swept up in that and lost in that. Right. And it may be that there's a few rounds of orgasm or just peaks that she's having that for you to be able to ride those, to be able to go to a deeper state. Right. And that may mean for some, it's like kind of, and this isn't for ever, you know, for all women, but it may be like staying off of the clitoris for a while, right? Like doing doing things that aren't gonna lead to immediate release for both of you, right? Where you go into these deeper deeper levels of lovemaking. But ultimately, you know, I mean, Kiana, you're you're right. It's like this question is a bit flipped. You know, I might like to ask this question. I might like to you know, hear a response to this question of like, if it were coming from her, like maybe she had a desire to squirt, what right. would that, what would that look like? Right. And that would look like if she had that desire would be like extended lovemaking. And then there may be a moment where it feels like she has, it's almost like a sensation, almost like, almost like urinating, like, she, and, and to just allow herself to have that sensation. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is that area, you know, you, if you're, imagining the vaginal canal in your mind's eye and that's the area of the g-spot is like an inch or inch and a half roughly inside the upper vaginal wall and that the type of stimulation that a person really likes there and the way that the nerves are actually distributed in that part of the vagina varies from person to person so say someone had an ex-partner who really liked stimulation this way that type of movement will not necessarily translate to the next person. And that's really, really important because it might not even really be in the same location. They, your part, current partner might not even have the same level of sensitivity in their G-spot that a different partner had. But what I, what I like to say about the vagina is that the, like, the whole thing is orgasmic. There's not just like this one little G-spot. There's, you know, of course, G-spot, there's the AFE zone, there's the cervix. But there's areas all over and all inside that haven't ever been put into a textbook that feel really, really, really good. And if you can start to discover those and your, I think hands are probably one of the best tools we have for exploring intravaginal pleasure. 
because you have these digits that like can move in all directions. You have full control of them. You can use one, two, you could use three. You can experiment with, you know, like your whole hand at some point if somebody is very relaxed. And so, but the goal would be like an exploration together where you actually go into, you know, pleasure mapping your partner, where the the sexual experience is actually geared towards you using your hands and touching intravaginally in ways where you just ask like what could I do to make this feel better and she's like oh more pressure there or like oh 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 that feels good like if someone's like oh 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 like stop there and keep don't, doing don't, that thing keep for doing a while that. don't don't move don't keep change. doing it don't move and sometimes pleasure can jump around like something that feels good for 3 minutes starts to feel a little bit like too much and it will move to another location so that idea of tracking your partner and just being being so linked up with them that wherever she's going, you're going to, and your your body's instincts will start to take over. And that's the sweet spot, I think, in any sexual experience where your bodies are talking to each other. You don't even have to strategize or think about, you know, oh, like maybe this will work. It's just like, it's a natural knowing that we all have that gets a little covered up with our prefrontal cortex. Amazing. All right. Super juicy. Well, we weren't able to get to all of the questions, but I think we got through through most of them. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Really look forward to everybody's feedback on this episode. It's something we haven't done before. I'd love to hear how this was for everybody as you listen to this. And Kiana, you have this other job, right? That I'd love to <laughs> that I'd love to hear about because yeah. You know, and to be perfectly clear, not a sponsor of the show, but like the best lube out there. You have a very large role for like, I mean, frankly, like the best lube company in the world or personal lubricant. Like, tell us a little bit about your role at Foria. Yeah. So I've been with Foria for six years since we were like a three person company. And I was doing everything from our social media to shipping out packages. And it's been such an incredible journey of being able to take my field of expertise in this world and translate it into education and all of the conversations we're having. So my role is chief content officer. I've worn probably 10 different titles at the company, but really I own our brand messaging, our voice, all of the content that we create, every conversation that we get to have. And it's all geared towards education and empowering, particularly women and, and folks with vulvas on understanding how their bodies work and helping them and their partners experience more pleasure just in all of the ways we were just talking about in that last question. And, and we use, you know, all, all natural, all organic, all plant-based, like the most high quality effective products that I think are available and have ever been available. Yeah. For I mean, purposes. for those that have not tried for you, try for you. It is like hands <laughs> yeah, so. down the best lube. And so yeah. my last question for you is like, how much lube is too much lube? There's never enough lube. <laughs> right? There's never enough lube because you know what? Right. Studies show that just using a lube like enhances everybody's sexual pleasure mm -hmm. by like 30%. Yeah. Like even if it was Vaseline, which is horrible, don't do that. But, you know, using a really good clean lube, what it does, especially I'll speak as a person with a vulva and a vagina, like our, our tissues are very sensitive. They're made of mucous membranes, which is the same as what's in your mouth. And when they're dry or they don't have enough moisture, they tear really easily. Hmm. And there's a lot of friction in sex. And friction is usually what makes it feel good, but it can make it feel really painful if there's not enough lube. And there's this, there's this kind of terrible narrative that made its way into our understanding of how women's bodies work that if you're not, quote unquote, wet, you're not turned on. And so partners, you know, take it personally, like, you know, I don't want to use a lube because I don't want to offend my partner and think he's not turning me on. I've heard that so many times from women. Or I tried to give a guy a lube once as like a thank you present for helping me at this like event I was working at. I was speaking at, and he was like, what's this for? Like, if I'm not turning around enough. And I'm like, mm. we literally just have to throw that into the garbage mm -hmm. and understand that lubrication does not equate arousal in and desire. It is, um, there's a great word for it, but I can't think of the word. They happen asynchronously of each other. Sometimes right. there's moisture. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes the moisture gets used up because yeah. of sex. So like lube everywhere, all the time, all the time, every time, yeah. 
makes everyone feel good. Really important. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have epic, long lovemaking sessions where you're going for hours, like we all dream and hope we can do, I guarantee there's going to be rounds where things get a little drier and then they get wetter. And like, it's, it's a sign that you've like, you've kind of reached that first peak, right? Like, and there's more peaks, but you, you know, so if you want to go to the next peak without her or them being sore, (laughs) you need a lot of lube, right? It doesn't, it's not an indictment on anyone's lovemaking capacity. If anything, I would say the longer you can last, the more necessary the lube gets. And right. So yeah, yeah, never too much lube. Never too much. <laughs> All right. Well, this is my friend, Kiana Reeves. Kiana, thank you so much for joining us. Ah, so happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen that you try one new thing one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose deeper meaning a life of greater love and maybe that one thing is a little different a little odd a little intense perhaps even a little crazy 